This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding. One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process. The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial. As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going. You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case. Whatever you think about, you create. Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I have attorney Sarah Williams. She's a service out of Birmingham, Alabama with Alexander Sonora Trial Lawyers. She's got a bunch of great verdicts, including a $12 million verdict she's going to tell us about. Uh, She does more than just try cases, though. She is really trying to bring up and empower the next generation of trial lawyers, both by teaching and coaching at law school and by working with uh, lawyers to try to get more lawyers into the courtroom that may otherwise shy away from the courtroom. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about yourself. So I'm an army brat. I was born in Tallahassee, Florida, but grew up in uh, Germany, Holland, and White Sands Missile Range, New Mexico. Um, Graduated from Florida State University and attended uh, law school in Birmingham at Cumberland School of Law and and stuck around. Um, I practiced insurance defense for the first seven years of my practice, including a trucking defense practice for the latter part. Um, and then I just couldn't do it anymore and joined the Shannara firm to help develop their litigation practice. So what did you do to develop yourself as a trial lawyer to get the kind of skills you need to get a $12 million verdict? Um, So Cumberland is one of the country's top trial advocacy schools. Um, And although I didn't attend for that reason, when I was a first year law student, my mentor made me do uh, the first year um, mock trial competition. And I really just fell in love with it. Like I found that it was it, it encompassed my nerdy. Um, desire to put a puzzle together that I was not as it made me realize I was not as introverted as I thought I was and it was something that it just it's like a bug that just grabs hold of you and so from that point forward which I love about it is like I knew my purpose like I was I didn't know where I was going to work but I knew as long as I was trying cases the job would be okay for me Um, and then I went to work for an insurance defense firm trying just like car wreck cases but um, I mean I tried my first case two weeks out of loss two weeks after bar results because we just had so many cases and so I sat second and it was just off to the races and we were uh, picking up files on Friday and trying them on Monday and it was a lot of fun you know until you get old enough to realize that that there are more factors in, in that go into wanting a job than, than just trying cases and so um, I wanted to handle more serious cases and so I started working for firms that 
that did trucking litigation and kind of got my feet wet in that and and tried some big cases as a defense lawyer and, and that I'm probably paying penance for sometimes when I get certain results. Um, and then um, just develop my skills that way, just trying cases as a defense lawyer, figuring out um, what works in our conservative venue and what doesn't, and then um, eventually did it on the other side. What made you want to be a plaintiff lawyer? I actually, when I was in law school, wanted to be a plaintiff's lawyer. But at that time, and I think it's just changed the, the job market, um, plaintiff's firms in our market weren't really hiring directly out of law school. And so I ended up, you know, just handling insurance defense. And then it got to a point, I, I remember the point where I decided I couldn't do it anymore. The last case, big case I tried as a defense lawyer was a wrongful death case involving the drowning of a nine-year-old. And I tried to get as much money as I could on it because I knew I was going to beat those lawyers because I knew I was a better trial lawyer than them. Um, but it just, it didn't sit well with me. And it was the first time I ever won a trial and went home and did not celebrate it. And I said to myself, like, if I'm not celebrating my wins, then, the, then this doesn't feel good, then I need to do something else. And so... It took a little bit, but probably it was less than a year later that I left and joined Alex's firm. And I want to go back to something you said earlier, and then I want to go back to the trial skills villa. You said you were an introvert. I, that is just blowing my mind. I, because <laughs> for the first time I met you, I felt like you're instantly my friend. You're easy to get to talk to. It's just... You know, so it's one of those things where I grew up... So when when we our last duty station was in Germany and then we moved back to the States and it was like a completely different world and I just um, I'm, I've always been a big reader I've always been a huge nerd I mean my nickname in high school was super nerd so I was always just very self-conscious and just really quiet like I, people who, who went to high school with me are actually surprised at who I have become now but I think that um what the gift trial advocacy gave me was really recognizing the value of my voice, if that makes any sense. And so I think that I, I was not an introverted person, but I had always been told that I was shy. Right. And it wasn't that I was shy, but, you know, I said things when I needed to say things, but I internalized that. And so um, I think that when it came to our trial advocacy program and being coached um, by the coaches who, who did a phenomenal job, just bringing out who we were and being authentic, like the real me just came out. And and so that's why when you say a lot of people say, look, I, like you, you seem like my friend. And it's like, yeah, because I'm now being me. And I, I was um, kind of given the freedom to do that in a, the strangest, most concerned conservative school, but um, it worked out well. It's interesting because when I'm in court, when I'm on stage, I feel very real, very me. When I'm here in our tribe of trial lawyers, now I feel very comfortable. But when I go into other groups, I, I don't, I'm not that extroverted. So I have that experience sometimes too. Like it's in it. 
takes me a little bit to warm up. Like this is our, these are our people, right? We're here at the ATA convention. We are with our tribe. That's right. And so I think part of it is what I've discovered for me is it's like, we speak the same language. We like the same jokes. We, you know, we when you go out and you're talking to folks that you don't know if they're your people and you're so like afraid, right? You're afraid of saying something that doesn't seem sound cool or um, so that that is something that I still struggle with a little bit. And I think that the more and more I do things like this, when I was managing the firm, I had to um, attend like mass torts conferences. And, they'll, you know, there are lawyers who do both, but obviously single events lawyers and mass towards lawyers are different and so there were those instances where I felt uncomfortable um, but had to develop uh, the um, I guess stamina to get comfortable and so that has I've had that same feeling but I've kind of worked through it some. and I heard a rumor y'all learned how to do a ride on mass towards <laughs> we do yeah we do all right uh-huh. <laughs> I've always been too scared to jump to put my toes in that water but um <laughs> Maybe one day. It, you you have to, I think, have a um, stomach for risk. I'm risk averse. Yeah. I have a stomach for risk, but risk and swimming in a pool of sharks and bloody water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could tell you some stories, but it's yeah. it's worked out. It's worked Good. out. I'm glad to hear that. And. Uh, your boss is such a nice guy too. He he is our partner. I'm sorry. What? I, he's, I mean, he's my boss. Yeah. He is. He's so nice, and I think um, has been the greatest partner to have in, in the legal space. He. It, it's weird when we met the first time. I was like, man, I don't know that I want to come and work for you. And then like three hours later, he was like, okay, so you're starting in two weeks. And we've been like best friends since then. And people are always like, y'all are such an odd couple. Um, But he's just a genuine person. And I think he has really helped me um, be open enough to like be vulnerable in my cases and, and use my emotional intelligence, which I think a lot of lawyers don't talk about, but which is important to what we do. Um, and he's so good at that. And so he's a great leader and a, and a great guy. Um, we, I can't say enough good things about him. That's awesome. What's some of the differences between what you had to do to be successful as a defense trial lawyer versus what you're having to do now to be successful as a plaintiff's trial lawyer? And I know my friends on the defense are going to hear this and, and wring my neck, but I, I absolutely, I tell people this all the time. I, what I do now is so much harder. Crafting the arguments and crafting the theory and, and figuring out how to um, ensure that the jury um, understands the effect your client's injuries actually had on them as a person and figuring out what the emotions of your case are. When I was a defense lawyer, the formula for us was I needed, you know, pre-existing medical conditions, a lie. I practice in a pure contributory negligence state. Um, And so the bar was not as high, I, I feel, now that I've done it on both sides. And so 
as a plaintiff's lawyer, I have done more um, attending CLEs and trial skills seminars and reading books to, to develop and hone those skills than I ever did as a defense lawyer. Um, just because I, I just think our our burden, obviously, it's our burden, but I just think we have such a huge mountain to climb when it comes to presenting our cases to juries. Absolutely. What are some of the books and seminars you found the most useful? Um, obviously, ATA. I've actually been following this group since it was with 360 Advocacy. Um, but the AAJ Trial Skills Colleges are so great. Um, sorry, De Lamonts, um, from Hostage to Hero. You know, if you're not listening to that podcast, you know, in her earlier podcast, too, it's required listening for my advanced trial skills students at Cumberland. Um, I've done the Keith Mitnick, Don't Eat the Bruises. Um, but I will tell you the other books that have really helped me in, in terms of digging into my own vulnerability and empathy. I love Brene Brown. Um, I just read Amy Cuddy's book on presence, um, which is something we teach uh, a lot about at Cumberland, but it really um, allowed me to connect the dots between, you know, what we teach and and the actual psychological uh, foundation for it. And so I'm always looking for books that help me delve into my mindset and improve my mindset, because I think when we are in the right state of mind and are viewing our cases in the right state of mind, that's when we can really tap into the emotions and the empathy and the vulnerability and, and best communicate that to a jury. Absolutely. We actually, uh, when we first started, invited Brene Brown uh, to be on this podcast, but she's so good at setting boundaries, she's politely said, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And she's not a trial lawyer, so I get it. Just because there is, I think, so much much interaction between, you know, learning to take care of yourself and learning to take care of our clients. Absolutely. I, I never understood this. I never, I've heard it. I never really internalized it until the last year or so is that, for a long time, I thought what I needed to do to get great verdicts was to love my client. And I, that's absolutely true. You have to get to know them. You have to find what there is to love about them. Right. But if I don't love myself, I don't think the jury's going to love me. And that's been so hard for me to do. If you don't love yourself. And I think the reason why is because you can tell when someone is standing in front of you and they are not comfortable with themselves. Right. And I think that when someone appears comfortable and relaxed, that exudes confidence. And then the jury looks to that person as a leader. But when you are not comfortable with yourself. Right. And and trying to figure your own emotions out about the case. I just. I think juries pick up on those things and I don't think you present your case as confident. Um, and that's one thing we teach you. You are the leader in the courtroom, right? And you yeah. want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. And if you're not confident in yourself, they're not, you're not going to be their leader. Yeah. So far the, the one thing I got it from Sergeant Lamont, our mutual mentor and friend uh, is imagine if we could, be as gracious and forgiving with ourselves as we are with everybody else. Absolutely. We are so hard on ourselves as trial lawyers. And I think it's because our business is so, um, it's like your entire reputation is based upon the outcome. And Alex and I were actually just having this conversation today about, you know, verdicts. And I haven't had one recently. And I said, you know, I really have gotten to the place in my career where, 
I am only concerned with whether I tried this case the best way I could, whether I did the best job for my client, whether I tried it better than I tried cases last year and the year before that. And so, but I think just because of the advertising and marketing and just kind of how we've all come up, you know, um, we get so focused on if I lose this trial, that says something about me. And I think we internalize that as like a, our worth is in is is based upon the outcomes of these trials. We don't know what a what a jury's going to do, and I'm not going to allow a jury what 12 people think of my case if I try it the best to the best of my ability and and, and I do what I know I need to do. That doesn't establish my value and I feel, or my worth. And I but I think most lawyers feel like that. You know, our our results equal our worth, and we've got to get away from that. I agree to. to let your happiness or your love for yourself or your worth be based on something that's totally outside your control and honestly no matter how great of a job you do what the facts are and what jurors you end up getting on that path I mean there are so many variables right that you just cannot control you know how one juror you don't know what they have going on in their lives at that particular time or you just you can't can you can only control what you can control and I think if you have done the things right that you can control then then that's when that's all you have to worry about but it's difficult that's why I, I try to I say that you know part of I think your trial advocacy training has got to be mindset work too yeah right absolutely and it wasn't for me and I've been having I've been doing a lot of work on it now it's funny when I first started working with Sari Delamade we, we wrote some goals down and at the time one of my goals was an eight-figure verdict I still would like one but now my goal is to try cases and be alive in the courtroom and you know, instead of worrying about the score, I'm going to worry about the plan front. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it takes so much pressure off. I mean, because it's not my job. That's a jury's job to do the eight-figure verdict. That's not my job. My job is to give them what they need to do it. That's if right. They, if they screw it up, that's on them. That's right. That's now, right. Now, you know, if I, if I don't do my... Now, I'll, I have no problem being hard on myself, so I don't want to sound flippant. Uh, but I'm about 10 days up for trial, and I'm really working on my set. And I'm going to try the hell out of case. That's right. But I don't control the outcome, and so I'm, I'm giving it up. And, uh, in fact, my partner was Sonia was all stressed uh, last week, and I said, "Okay, well, I'm going to delegate the stress to you. Uh, uh, whenever I start feeling it, I'm going to think, well, that's Sonia's job. Sonia's Sonia can feel the stress, and she's getting through it. I mean, she just I still get caught up in it sometimes, and I just I, I think do, it's because I'm, it's the nature of our business. But I'm you know, hard, that's right. I'm trying real hard to let it go because I that's have to right. remember if I focus my energy on what I have control over, which is my preparation, my effort." Then I have the best effort. If That's I'm right. stressed out, if I'm tired, and I'm spent all this energy worrying about something over which I have control, then that's all the time and energy I've not spent getting ready. It's well, really counterproductive. And there's only so much space in your brain to think about things, right? And and when you're in trial, you got to think about what objections to make. You got to think about whether you're preserving the records. You got to try to read the jury and how are they, you know, taking in what you're what you're putting out there. You got to think about, you know, how you are delivering whatever it is you're delivering. And so if you have to think about all those things and then have space in your brain to also hold on to that fear of their outcome, then you just don't have that brain space. So what made you decide you wanted to not just 
work magic law firm, try cases, but then somehow find time to teach at law school and coach at mock trial team at law school? So I have been coaching mock trial since 2010. Um, and I, it's funny because I went to law school because I was an English lit major, but I did not want to teach. Yeah. <laughs> and so now here I am. But I, I think that um, there is nothing better than seeing a student who is kind of like I was introverted, doesn't think they have the skills, doesn't think that they have the personality. Right. They're not some a legacy trial lawyer. They've never been, you know, in a courtroom and taking them, you know, and training them. And, and having that aha moment and every student always has it um, for them and, and when they realize and cross over into that I say from good to great and they own themselves and they're just being who they are like it really motivates me um, it helps keep my skills sharp too for when we're not trying cases on evidence and things of that nature um, but I really do just I really get enjoyment and then when my students go out into um, the real world and are trying trying cases. I've had a student with, you know, one of the largest verdicts in one of our, one of our counties in Alabama, and I'm so proud of her. And so that, um, that motivates me, but there were so many people who poured into me and it's largely volunteer at Cumberland. Um, and so I just feel a responsibility. I feel like I was given so much. And so I feel a responsibility to give that back. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to Delisi at CowanLaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at CowanLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. Now, one other thing I've noticed is we, we interact a lot on social media and you have just incredible, I mean, anyone, you know, as long as you're not creepy, follow her. <laughs> Uh, because you have, you know, just inspirational, great videos, great quotes. Thank you. That you're putting out. And by videos, I mean you, videos of you. Not right. just, you know, you're not just finding YouTube videos. Uh, what inspired you to start doing that? I mean, I don't know how you find time to do all the things you do. <laughs> well, I don't Yes, that, that's all that constant struggle. That's my 2022 time management. That's my mission. Um <laughs> So when I decided, uh, you know, managed our firm from 2000, October of 2017 through December of 2020, but I decided in January of 2020, pre-pandemic, um, that I wanted to get back in the courtroom more because to manage a firm that had grown from 40 lawyers to over 100 lawyers um, was taking up a lot of my time. And... I just didn't want to get out of the game, you know, yeah. um, and some things you do well, but are not your ministry. So I think I did a good job managing the firm, but it wasn't something I loved to, to do. And so uh, Alex and I sat down and he said, well, why don't we brand you separately for me in, in terms of marketing? But I was never comfortable with kind of the traditional um, legal marketing for me because I'm still somewhat of an introvert. And so I decided 
that I would do um, more of a thought leadership type um, thought leadership type branding. And, and so one of the things I'm passionate about is encouraging people who don't think they can be trial lawyers to be trial lawyers. And what I've seen as a as a law school professor is I will have so many talented women lawyers at, or future lawyers, law students, who I just, you know, expect to have great careers as trial lawyers. And then they get out and practice and I never see them again. And when I catch up with them, they are not trying cases. And it's such a waste of talent. And I think um, it's a disservice to, you know, our potential clients. And so I really wanted to do something to encourage women lawyers to um, empower them to step into the courtroom, to try cases, to um, advocate for themselves at their law firms. But it's kind of, um, I get so many messages from men as well saying, hey, I really was motivated by your video. So it's been a it's been a great response and I've been really happy with it. I was nervous about it. Yeah, I know I'm not your target demographic, <laughs> but I love them. I, I mean, I'm motivated. It, it makes me, and I, I don't just love your videos. I love what you're doing. I love the you are putting yourself out there and to have to work with like you know Alexander he's one of the hugest advertisers in multiple states but to let to have someone that would encourage you to build your own brand most people would be scared if you build your own brand it means you can live with your brand you know it's so funny you say that he said um the first conference we went to after it launched, he said people came up to him and said, why in the world would you let Sarah do that? And he said, well, first of all, I don't let Sarah do anything. (laughs) (laughs) She wanted to do this and I wanted to support her in it because I think it's a great idea and I believe in it. But also if I had said no, she was going to do it anyway. She just would not do it with me. Um, But he was, it was so funny. He was like, it's so weird. People are asking me why I let you do it. And I'm like, I don't own her. Um, He's been such a great partner for the, but yeah. What a relationship of of trust and confidence for him to not have the fear to like, yeah, she's good. Let, let me let her brand. She, she maybe someone would want to hire her that wouldn't want to hire me, and then I still, you know, he still benefits, right? And if not, like you know, if one of my lawyers, like oh, God forbid, Mallory left me. I mean, but if that happened, I'd be happy. I would want her to see her blossom. I would want her to succeed. I mean, that's I, exactly I would right. Selfishly want her to succeed with me because she's great, and I just love her as a person and love the, the working relationship but if she decided that she'd rather be on her own why would I want her to do anything to flourish so that's and I think that happens when you are comfortable with yourself and yeah. he's very comfortable with his own success and he has been the greatest mentor he's really the one that has, has ingrained in me you are competing against you you know we've had some big firms come into our market and people have always said hey called us up and said hey are y'all worried and he said nope because I'm competing against myself and as long as I'm getting, you know, more cases than I was before, I can't worry about the competition. But we're also friends, you know, and, yeah. and I think um, when you care about someone, you care about their success and it may not be with you. Right. Sure. Um, we've had lawyers leave and I'm happy for them to be successful. But um, he also he'll tell you he'll, he says, look, if you leave, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to send you cases. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> It sounds like you got a good thing going. We have a great relationship. It it is um it I think it's very rare, but I think it's because we are very honest with each other and, and we can have the 
folks at my firm will tell you, we have some knockdown drag outs, but we usually can talk it out. But I think when you have the ability to be honest with whoever is in leadership at your law firm and, and be able to say, hey, these are the things I need to be successful here, um, just great things will happen. And that's, again, one of the motivations for my videos, because I have always at, at all of the firms I've been at um, have done things that folks are like, wait, you got the opportunity to do this? And I said, yeah, because I asked, you know? Um, and so I want to encourage young lawyers. Like if you have a goal, if, you know, don't sit in your office, tell somebody, tell them, I want to try a case. I want to get involved with trucking litigation. I had to ask, I was um, stuck in an office and was assigned to an employment lawyer. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. And it was so boring. And I walked down the hall to, to the guys who were doing trucking litigation. And I said, can I get on one of your cases? And they said, sure. And the next day I was off to an inspection and you know, it's been, it, I, it, I oddly fell in love with it. So, you know, something that I didn't know um, I would love to do. And so I just think you, you have to be able to say, hey, this is, these are my ambitions. And so I try to encourage young lawyers to do that. That's great advice. In fact, you read my mind. I was going to ask you what advice you give <laughs> to someone who wants to, to do more who feels stuck with their firm. And, uh, yeah, you got You have to find someone. And I think that now that you know what I hate is, is I'm now like the, the older partner. Right. And so and, and sometimes I folks will say I'm so intimidated to come into your office, although it's like, dude, I have a nine foot pink couch like you cannot be <laughs> intimidated to walk in here. But I get it. Um and I don't know what it was. I think that I had just a level of like cockiness because I had done well in law school. And so I, I thought I was like, you know, I thought I was something. And so I just didn't have any fear in terms of walking into a partner's office and saying, listen, you know, my goal is to be a great trial lawyer. And these are these are the things I feel like I need. And so, I mean, I was on a DRI trucking board. Um, I was on their board as like a fourth year lawyer. But it was because I said, look, I want to get involved and I want to figure this out. And so it's I think you have to harness your fear. My next video for October is going to be about harnessing your fear and and approach people that you don't think you can approach and just say, hey, this is what I would like to do. Can I talk to you about, you know, best steps for getting there? The worst they can do is say no. That's it. But the but if they say yes, I am proof that amazing things can happen for you. So except for the organizations like Academy Truck Action Attorneys, AAJ, I mean, we're actually actively wanting is just we only have so much time and energy to go about recruiting people, but if people ask you know, that's exactly and right. And then when you get put on a committee, put on do something. Don't do just something. okay. I've got on my resume. I've done this, and now you know. Now I want to. I want all the glory. I don't want to do the work. I mean, do the work, and then you move up. And I think the biggest mistake lawyers make when they come to these conferences is not getting to know the speakers, um, and and going to the cocktail parties and just like standing in the corner. Uh, and and we obviously we bring we usually have a larger crew, and so it, it is probably a little easier for us um, to approach people because we we approach them as a group. But there were times when I was coming to these things by myself and, and other other conferences by myself. And I am still shy 
sometimes, but you just have to, again, harness that fear and get to know folks because there have been so many people like Jean Marie um, has been amazing in terms of um, opening up opportunities, explaining things to me. And so you won't, you don't know the types of people that you can meet and who can open up opportunities for you if you go to the conference and then go to your room. And then I get that, you know, you're away from your family and, and maybe your kids and it's a fun city, but I think it's so important to identify conference events and identify people like, you know what? My goal is to talk to Michael Cowan about, you know, X case at this conference. And once I do that, I've checked it off the list and I've done it. Um, But I just I think that people miss opportunities to grow within their industry and to brand themselves and market themselves within the legal industry by just, you know, sitting, sitting there, taking their notes and going back to their room and you know absolutely no one's going to bite your head off and most of the people that speak i mean when you speak at a conference typically you're not getting paid typically you're right. paying your own travel you're getting your own hotel room you're getting there because you want to make an impression on people you want to meet people right so we're they, not Brene brown yeah they want people to, <laughs> we want people to come up and talk to absolutely uh, and i love the like you know, I had lunch with a lawyer today. I never had lunch with before, you know. Right. Well, in like our firm, and I think what I've seen, you know, we were, Alex is branded as the billboard lawyer, but in the new markets we're going into, we're not even really buying billboards other than kind of like Atlanta because digital marketing is, is the trend. And I think what I've seen is when firms are marketing, you know, themselves digitally, social media, SEO, they're going to get cases in your market. And so one of the things like that is a mission for us is to establish relationships with lawyers in other states, because you never know when you're going to get a case in Seattle and you need to know who to call immediately if it's a trucking case. Right. But you never know. Someone may end up with the case in Alabama. Like we've had cases referred to us from Canada, (laughs) you know, you just don't know. And so it's, it's just a waste to come to these things and not meet somebody new. Yeah, I do. I mean, I was hired, had a referred to Canadian nurses that were in South Texas on a trip with the bus got a crash. Right. You know, it happens. And, you know, the, but if you don't, it's all top of mind. If you can be the best one in the world, but if the person doesn't remember you when they're making that decision. And what we remember are the people who make connections with. That's exactly right. That's you exactly forget right. about who gave the great speech, but you remember the person you had lunch with. You remember the person you had, you had sat with at the bar afterwards. That's right. That's right. And then you can just develop, I've developed some of the best friendships. Um, You know, my brother recently passed and there are so many people who I've met through these conferences who reached out and donated to his GoFundMe. It was just like the amount of support that I received from across the country was just astounding. And so I just, I think that um, you miss out on that when you just are like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go. And then I'm just going to go do my own thing. Like it ends up being a waste of your money. Well, even though we, we're not going to measure our self-worth by big verdicts, <laughs> they are still really cool. Uh, and you've got a $12 billion verdict. Uh, can you tell us about that case? So that um, was a case that me and one of my partners, Brandon Bishop, tried against the Birmingham um, bus system, the BJCTA, in December of 2017. But it was um, it arose out of a 2014 wreck, which the driver um, had a 
fainting um, spell, passed out, turned the bus over on its side, it fell down in a ravine. Um, the worst injury was um, our primary name plaintiff who had her leg amputated um, above the knee. And, and what we what developed throughout the course of discovery was the reason why she actually lost her leg um, was because when she saw the bus driver um, lean to the side and pass out, she ran up to the front of the bus and tried to, she was trying to get control of the bus to steer it back onto the roadway. And as they were turning, as it, the bus was turning over, the handicap ramp fell onto her leg. Um, she's such an amazing person but it you know Alabama has municipal caps um, and so th there were huge discussions in regards to that and issues in regards to that um, and, and so we tried it almost you know Joe Free talks about the speedy trial we tried it in a week but we had 17 plaintiffs and wow. I think we got we called the bus driver and the, and the corporate rep first um, and took some time with them because what we discovered was this particular driver had been having syncopal episodes while driving the buses since 1999. Wow. And um, it was one of those simple things of... Um, he had a congenitally narrowed um, arteries in the back of his neck. And so what would happen is when he got congested and he couldn't breathe well, he couldn't get oxygen to those arteries. And so he would pass out. And his doctor said, look, the only fix for that is if you don't feel good, don't drive. That's it. And so he, when we pulled the video, when we finally got the video and had to fight for it, the, the, the good version of it, um, we could hear him telling the passengers, man, I, you know, I sure don't feel good today. And they'd ask about him and he'd say, man, I couldn't even go to church on Sunday. You know, living in the South, if you can't go to church on Sunday, you feel real bad. Um, and so he eventually passed out and it was was, um, you know, verdicts like that are tough in our state. Um, our state has not affirmed a verdict that large. Um, this one, it went up on appeal, but we um, concluded it prior to that. Um, so it was it was a great case to try. And our clients, I, I will tell you, in the beginning of this trial, I, I will never forget this. Our this courtroom was small, and so our clients had to sit um, behind us in the well, and then we had the panel across from them, but the judge had each of our clients walk up to the well to um, introduce themselves. And when our client who had the amputation walked limped up because for a long time she had a prosthetic that didn't fit well um, when she limped up, I will never forget. There were people in our panel laughing at her. And I remember just thinking they have like no empathy for her. But I tell my students all the time, I think that the thing that shocks folks is that sometimes jurors will have more empathy for the bus drive, the defendant. Right. And they did. And so when he stood up, 
jurors were smiling at him, nodding at him. And, I, and so we knew we had an uphill battle in terms of um, developing, you know, the emotion of, of the case. We knew, all right, we got to go ahead and get him on the stand and get this 30B6 on the stand and flip the emotions of this jury. We cannot call our plaintiffs first because these folks don't feel sorry for our clients. And so we've got to make them, we've got to get the anger out. And then um, we went through 17 plaintiffs in a day because we just, we had stipulated to their medicals. We spent half the day with, with our um, kind of the lead plaintiff and then spent half a day with the rest. Um, what was it you did that got the jury upset with the defense? Established the notice, the, the BJCTA's failure to... Um, one, they had a they had an issue with their record keeping, so they had been changing management constantly over the years, and so it took us a long time to get all of um, this particular driver's records because the records they would they would change uh, companies who did their safety and then start new record keeping. It was very it was it was very odd, um, and, and so we established one that all the driver had to do was call in to dispatch. And there were relief drivers at the terminal who would pick up his who would pick up his his um, route. Um, and two, you know, we had to establish with the the 30B6 representative that the BJCTA had notice of these prior problems, and they continued to let him drive. Um, and, and you know what actually did it when we talked to the jurors afterwards, um, which I'm sure you know, is that our argument that, you know, what is it going to take for them to protect the roads that these buses drive on? I was 19 years old when he had his first fainting spell, you know, and here I am, 37, and he was, I mean, he was driving for them, you know, until I was 34. What is it going to take? And who's going to be next? You know, whose mom, whose sister, whose niece, whose brother, whose father um, is going to be next? And what what really got them is, and this was a something we didn't know they would admit to, we knew in depositions that they had no system for tracking um, prior medical conditions of their drivers. But we took the depositions in like 2015. Since that time, they had not developed any. Wow. Um, and so I remember when I was crossing the 30B6 and going through that line of questioning, you know, you see the jury and people were just like, OK. And, and so that's one of the things we brought out in closing. I assumed and, you know, you never you're not supposed to ask a question you don't know the answer to. But I had a sneaky suspicion that they had not done anything. Um, you know, I, I, I disagree with that. I think you don't ask a question you don't know the answer unless you're you listen to your gut that right. tells you to ask, ask it because you get I don't know what it is I don't know if it's God I don't know if it's magic that's right but you get in a space when you're in the moment in trial and you feel it and nine times out of ten you get gold when you do it that is true and you know it's funny I just had my cross-examination lecture with my students and I was like look I know everyone says don't ask a question you don't know the answer to but when you start feeling yourself and you feel that intuition and 
trusting yourself, right? Um, but the other thing is sometimes there are questions where the answer does not matter, right? And so at that point, I was like, you know what? If they have developed one, then we can argue they could have done it before, right? And if they haven't, and that's what we ended up with, then the jury's upset about it. And so it really was that, which, you know, it was kind of frustrating because I thought that our our, our client, our our, plain, our plaintiffs did so well and they and they they did they just did a, an amazing job in terms of describing their fear during the wreck and but that wasn't what triggered the jury you know right. it wasn't it was the fact that self-preservation absolutely how do you get around caps in case like that so in that case when you have violated a rule and so the BJCTA had a rule that if you were feeling ill you had to call someone um, and so we argued around the caps but we actually never um, had to reach that issue because simultaneously like after we got the verdict um, the driver had uh, the driver filed a bad faith lawsuit against um, the insurance company for the BJCTA because we had previously made a demand for their policy limits um, and there was an argument and my, my co-counsel is brilliant, made the argument that um, we were entitled to um, the caps for both the driver and the BJCTA right. and so it was essentially double and which would have given us $600,000 <laughs> and so we fought about that for years and then the week before trial they said you know what y'all are right and we said well no you know you had the opportunity to resolve this case um in 2015 and you didn't take it and and so during the course of litigate the bad faith case being um litigated you know things went away Good. yeah enjoying the episode Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go. I'm fascinated about how you manage a firm that big, <laughs> how you manage litigation and, and you know, and keep keep quality uh, without, you know, totally. Micro- and I'm asking selfishly because I try to manage other lawyers. So for me, our lawyers are kind of all their own departments. And so really, when it came comes to managing them, um, it was more so, you know, putting structure in place in regards to running reports. We have trial works. Um making sure that that we had different processes in place in terms of, you know, statute checks and when things need to be filed and, um, you know, different procedures for resolving cases and, and, you know, hiring experts, right? Because we ended up with some cases where experts were hired without approval and we lose, you know, six figures on a case that probably shouldn't hire, have hired experts in or taken in the first place. So I spent most of my three years putting in place um, a lot of policies and procedures to kind of help with that. But for the most part, our lawyers do a good job of managing their own dockets. I mean, they are all eat what you kill. And so 
you know, if they're not managing their dockets, they're not making any money. But for me, I have a great team and managing managing the firm and then managing my own docket. Um, I've got a great, 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 great staff. That's awesome. So what's next? Oh man, you would ask me that. I actually, I, I, I'm at a, I'm at a crossroads in, in my career, and I don't know if it's you know the 41 threshold. Like that seems like, you know, I'm really into my 40s now. I think that I have gotten to the point where my legacy is much more important to me than the outcomes. Like I've, I've I feel like I've done the mindset work that I am not, like you said, I, like I would love an $8 million verdict, right? But I'd much rather know that I'm doing all the things to, to, to make sure that when I leave this earth, I had the, the best skill set that I could possibly have. I think as trial lawyers, we're always learning. Um, and so it's to continue to learn, but I think that it is to really narrow down my cases. Um, and I will probably handle less cases because I would like to teach more and maybe even write a book. I, I think that there is um, a gap in, and this is for you know women trial lawyers. I think there is a gap in mentoring for women trial lawyers. And there are just some obstacles that women in this space face that are just different. And there aren't a lot of people out there talking about that. And so I'm, I'm much more focused, I think, in, in the next 10 years of my life on what is my legacy going to be? You know, what impression am I going to leave in this world that is, is not based on verdicts and, and cases tried? I want to talk a little bit more about that. I was, thought we were going to finish up, but <laughs> uh... I know. When you asked it, I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> because one of the, I've noticed that it took me till my, I'm in my 50s, not my 40s, but the the mentoring, you know, I tried uh, arbitration uh, with Mallory, my partner, and it's funny because the I took a trial depot of their ex of their expert, and they ended up not even calling their expert. We played we played it because it was so good for us. And I felt like it was the best I ever did, but that's not what I was proud of in the case. What made me so proud was watching her cross, and then I the best thing is I she had. Ask a question her way, and I made a note like needs to ask leading questions. You know, like coaching after the trial's over, but before the verdict comes in, uh, go on these things, and and then then I heard how like she asked something totally different than the way I do it, and then she had the witness like fell into a trap because of the way she asked it, and then she you know very gently obliterated the witness and made her point, and like scratched out my notes like <laughs> she has grown beyond. I mean, first of all, she learned from me, which was awesome. And right. felt really good. But she's now growing on her own. She's got her style. She's got owning her own greatness. And it right. feels so good. And, you know, to be happy for someone else, it's just, you know, you have to get over your own people first. That's right. But, um, and so, and she's not, we have other women crawlers and, and men crawlers. And right. the guys that work for my firm, I also want to mentor them, and I want them to succeed equally. Right. Uh, but I know it can't be harder for women. What are some of the challenges women still face? I mean, it's, it's insane that it's 2021 and we still have these issues. It is. I think part of the, the challenges that we face are um, in dealing with, and, and I think as just kind of a 
society it's in dealing with you know our roles and, and I've faced that challenge is, is I am not and my husband will tell you I'm not real domestic like that's just not my that's not my ministry like, I, I will cook but I'm not cooking every night because you know I'm I was managing a firm with a hundred lawyers you know I'm not I, I'm not washing clothes and and, and, and I'm we're not going to have a Pinterest worthy birthday party that I did. You know, I'm going to pay someone for it. And so, but I think that like all of those societal pressures of being like a good step for wife and, and keeping up with all of that, plus trying to develop your skill set, trying to develop your mindset, trying to brand yourself, trying to market yourself, even within your own firm, trying to find opportunities. It's You only have so many hours in the day. And, you know, people will say, I hate this quote, like I have the same 24 hours as being. Beyonce. No, you don't. Beyonce has like four personal assistants and like three nannies and like a private chef. And you don't have that. You don't have as many hours as she does in a day. Like she, that expands her time. And yeah. and so I just, I think that as a, as a collective society, we have to say, okay, women have been in the workplace for a long time. You know, it's time for us to start looking at, you know, making our partners more comfortable with taking on the load of things, um, the mental load of things that that I think can often hold women back. Um, and I remember, like, my husband would go to... Um, like he would take he was the one who took our daughter on like the field trips for school and he was made to feel so uncomfortable you know folks would call him Mr. Mom it's like no he's her dad right and dads can do these things too and this idea that they shouldn't be or cannot be or that there's something wrong with that um, I just think we have to eradicate so that's one hurdle yeah I think you need a strong man to handle a strong woman I mean, if you have a, if you're an insecure man you're not going to be able to handle a successful woman I don't think it's, it's hard. that's exactly right Right. And it, but I think part of it is like people project their own insecurities. Like it, it, yeah. it, it goes great for us. And then somebody says something and it's like, I don't know about this. And it's like, hey, hey, this is our thing. You can't let those what other people think invade that. So that's one hurdle. Um, but then I think that so many of us have been we've just been socialized differently. And, and that's what I see. Like and I started a women's initiative at our firm. And so we would meet and I'm like, you have got to advocate for yourself. Right. You've gotten like like Joe said if we don't if you want to do something here you got to tell us we won't know right but I think that we're so accustomed to if I just do the work at some point someone's going to recognize the work and then they're going to ask me to do this thing and I just I I have sat in you know Alex we have a building and his office is in the penthouse and I've sat there and watched male lawyers come into his office and brag about a result on a case that like one of our female lawyers handled primarily right and it's like but they took that opportunity and the you know the first person to talk about it is usually the one who gets the credit for it and so I think there are just so many ways that we were socialized by our moms who, who you know, we have to forgive because they didn't know any better um, that affect the way um, we operate within firms. But then I think, you know, there are firms have to do a better job of ensuring that women are being given opportunities to showcase their talents. Right. And to showcase and to brand themselves and to do certain things. And, and so there's just there are a lot of hurdles, but I think we can overcome them. Like I really 
I really, really do. Like I've watched like Heidi DiLorenzo at our, at our firm and Stephanie Balsley, who was here. Like I have watched them just come into their own and it really just takes encouragement and someone to say, uh-uh, that was your result. You go talk to Alice about it. And so I just, part of what I like to do is not just encouraging, you know, women lawyers, but also law firm leaders. Like, to ask people what do you need as support you know and I what do you need to be successful and I think if we all work together law firm leadership women lawyers like we can overcome these hurdles but it t- it's going to take the effort absolutely and it's worth the effort and and I will tell you I mean having tried a lot of cases with all kinds of different people but on the other side and on, on my side once you get started I mean, maybe at first, when you're first walking in, they're sizing everybody up, they notice that stuff. Once you're in the story, once you're examining a witness, they don't care if you're a man, if you're a woman, if you're Hispanic, black, white, Asian, gay, straight, they don't care. That's exactly They get right. into the story, they get into what you're doing. I try cases in some of the most, and I fuss at Alex about this all the time. Like, I end up in the most conservative red venues in the state of Alabama, and people always say, like, aren't you worried about trying a case up there? And I don't, because I think that the one commonality that people have is they respond to authenticity. And when you are just being you and not pretending to be something else that you think they may want or that you think they may want to hear, changing your voice, I think people respond to that people respond to confidence people respond to authenticity and and that's just what i found in my real practice and so yes absolutely like i just i, I but i think people worry about it so much more than they should they really do I'm, I'm, in fact I've, I've, I've come full circle and you know I'm, I'm trying to case hopefully in a week and a half and a lot of people told me i need to board iron the fact that my client's african-american and those jurors aren't you know i don't think i, I don't nope. think it matters and i think it's it's almost demeaning the training. It only matters if, if it only matters to us because we have been trained I think to to take race into consideration. Now look, there are some counties that and there are certain times that race is an issue. Say, you know, a racial slur was used, right? I had a lawyer call me recently to, to flesh out some issues on jury selection because their um, client was accused of yelling a racial slur and then shooting the victim, right? Like that, that you well, got to deal with different. race. Exactly. But generally, I think it's almost, you're telling the jury, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. I think you're racist, yeah, right? And, and I've, I've come full circle on this. Uh, and the one thing I've noticed, and... and Marvel, the movies, yes, have really shown it because ten minutes into Black Panther, and my son, I'm telling you, my son seen ten minutes of the Shang Chi. Oh, I haven't seen I've it. I've seen yet. it, but you know, I don't think there, I don't think there's any white actors. I could be wrong. Oh, really? Black actor. I think I think it's an all Asian cast. Black okay. Panther was mainly a black actor. They right. Have a white bad guys. Right. But you don't notice. Well, you might notice because it's different, and thank God it's happening. Right. But once I got the story, I'm not thinking. This is a story about all black cast, and no, yeah, it's this is a story, and it's That's a right. great story. Well, and I think, and this people are always like, oh, I can't believe you try cases in Birmingham, Alabama, and you live in the South, and and we have our issues. Clearly, we have some significant issues, but one thing I recognize, I, I I definitely think that when it comes to certain issues about just humanity, right, and about the safety of our communities, and about 
the safety of the roads that we all travel on and about, you know, being motherhood. And they're just, we, we have much more in common than we are different. And, and I just, I really think that if you just focus on the human element of your case, those issues, I, I've never vortired on race. Yep. You know, I've never gone into an almost all white county and said, hey, is anyone going to hold it against my client? The fact that she hired a black lawyer. I mean, I, I work for, you know, Palestinian. Think about this. <laughs> Alexander Shinar, right, has become one of the largest law firms in, in one of the most conservative states, right? And we are hired by people who. I think if 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 you were to put them on a focus group, certain our colleagues would say, man, I'd be really nervous about having an Arab client, you know, but they trust us and they trust him. And I think that says a lot about a lot more um, about how we just have more in common than, than we than we do differences. And I think if you do a good job connecting to the emotions of the case and not worrying about I think those things are very surface level. And that I think is the problem with our industry is a lot of lawyers are afraid to dig deeper because then they have to do the work with themselves too, right? And so, but when you don't do the work with yourself, you're not you're not going to be willing to dig deeper into the emotions of your case either. And so you worry about surface level things, right? I think you're making the right decision. Good. We'll find out. I know, right? Uh, but I... I I don't see how I don't see how it could make a difference. I, I really don't, and I know really good lawyers that I think may disagree. Uh, a lot of them also came up during a very different time. And while we're certainly not perfect, I, there's a lot of people complain about things. There's a lot of hope. There's I have a, a reason, lot of hope. There's a reason there's fourteen thousand people living really in horrible conditions under a bridge trying to get here. I That's mean, right. There, and I think that if we can learn, and this is one of my there's people I love, and there's a little bit of a criticism about people I love. But, you know, when we talk about listening to jurors, we treat them with respect. We, we give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to do the right thing. You know, they think different than us or have a different opinion. But when we get into politics or social issues, we automatically condemn and, and assume the worst and assume if someone disagrees with us, they have a bad motive for doing it. If we would just treat other people who disagree with us with the same kind of love, compassion, and at least opening our mind to the possibility that they may have a non-evil reason for disagreeing with us. They may, we may both have the same goal and very, very different ideas of how to get there. And, you know, we may totally disagree with our ideas how to get there, but, you know, we can, I think just the, if the tone would change, the, the chance for healing I think that that goes we have become such a superficial society right with social media and I know yeah. look I market on social media but I think that that it has because I can just text my friends and not have to see them to connect with them like we're not connecting with people and it go that goes back to being surface level and I just I think when you have disagreements and you just look at the facts of the disagreement right and not you know okay let me try to understand your perspective right. right and I may disagree with that perspective but I want to understand you and for some reason we're just we just don't do enough of that we just don't and it, and I think it translates into what we do as trial lawyers totally and I think it uh, one of the advantages of living in a more conservative part of the state or part of the country like you and I do is that you get to know people and you say you and I are going to disagree on some issues 
but I still like him. And I still think that we both love this country and want this country to be a better place. And we may disagree on how, like how to get there or exactly what that is, but I'm not going to condemn you. I'm, we just we'll vote our vote and let the winner win. I think more of us want the same things. Yeah. And if we focused on the things that we all have in common, for, for I think we focus too much on our differences. I think if you start off with, okay, what what do we have in common, right? And then you establish that bond. I, so I got I have to tell you the story. When I just started doing trucking defense, we um, and it's funny because it was one of those monster cases where the firm that was handling it got fired. It got dropped on us. It was my nephew's first Christmas. I remember I had to skip Christmas to review all these documents, but I, I was so excited about it. I was like, we're going to do great. It was in a terrible uh, venue for, for defense lawyers. And my driver, we couldn't track him down. We finally, he walks into the office one day. And he says, I'm here. My name is so-and-so. I'm here to meet with Sarah Williams because I've been sued by two N-words. And my poor receptionist <laughs> freaks out. And so she calls me and says, he's here. And I was like, great. I've been trying to find this guy. We got trial in, in six weeks. And so, but at the same time, she ran to the, my partner's office and told him what the client had said. Well, I don't know. So I walk out of my office and I'm like, hey, Mr. So-and-so, I'm so happy to see you. I didn't expect you. And you could have knocked him over with a feather, <laughs> right? And so I put him in a conference room and I said, I'm going to go get you, get you some water and get you a file, uh, get your file. And so as I'm, as I'm coming back in, two of the oldest partners in the firm are coming through the other door of the conference room like they are about to fight this guy because they think he said it to my face and I'm like what are y'all doing get out of here and I'm as I issue get them out of the conference room I go back and my client's gone and I go to my partner's office and I hear him yelling and screaming and I was like well somebody all of the staff I'm the only black like person in the office all the staff is like in a corner talking and looking at me and I, I was like well somebody tell me <laughs> So they tell me what he said, and I was so upset. So I went to my office, and I had worked so hard on this case. And I was upset because I said, I'm going to get pulled off of this file, right? He's going to demand that I not work on the file. I have worked so hard on this case. I want to try this case. Um, And so I was just like angry mad. Then my partner came in and said, hey, I've set him straight. Go have your meeting. He's going to be polite to you. So we try this case. We get a, a great result. And this guy, until the day he died, would call me once a year. He actually apologized to me at trial. He said, I am so sorry that I said that. Um, you are you have been a great lawyer. You have been. I'm so glad that you represented me. I wouldn't have wanted anybody else. I'm like, I tell my whole family about you. And it's really changed my perspective on people. And I'm just so glad that we had the chance to be able to get to know each other. I think our, our shared humanity can do a lot more. Absolutely. He would call me every year. And even when I changed firms he called, awesome. he actually referred me cases and that's then he awesome. passed uh, you know a couple years ago yeah, so that's 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 my heart you know there's there's always hope 
and and I think it's again when you like I could have reacted completely differently right I could have said I'm not gonna represent this person but one I wanted to try this case because I knew it was it was a case that would help brand me in our community but I also had worked so hard on it I think that if people would do more of like having difficult conversations from a place of empathy and understanding and commonality that we could do so much more because even something as bad as that may have come more from from ignorance and upbringing than actually actual hatred. I mean, it's not, I'm not forgetting it. I mean, don't. He was born and I mean, he was, he was my grandparents' age. He grew up in a different time. Yeah. Right. And what you did may have made a little change to the world, whereas are they just taking you off the case? All it does is reinforce. And, and why do you give the power to ignorance? Why do you let ignorance take an opportunity away from you? That's right. And, uh, That's right. Um, so, yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that Alex has told me that sticks with me is to be great, you have to get com- comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that was an uncomfortable experience for me. But at the end of the day, one, we got a great result. I argued a closing argument at a young age in a huge venue and a huge case. Um, and it really it really uh, elevated my career with even Again, I'm still paying penance because <laughs> I was a defense lawyer then. But at the end of the day, had I said, this is too uncomfortable for me, right? I'm not going to proceed. Like, I don't really know what my career will be like. And so I just, I think, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable to walk into a partner's office or to walk up to a speaker after a conference and say hello or, or volunteer to do something or to speak in front of crowds like this where you have so many talented lawyers and I still get imposter syndrome. Like, why do they want to listen to what I have to say? Um, but I think when you when you just get comfortable with having that weird feeling in your gut and pushing through it, like on the other side of that are so many great opportunities. Absolutely. Well, I hope you keep having great opportunities. I'm looking forward to continuing our friendship, to continue to be inspired by you with all your great online stuff. And I look forward to seeing you at our next event. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content, In live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to Delisi at CowanLaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at CowanLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. 
This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came 